Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books oh, to get you excited. And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May good. the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hello, and welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Bryce Maddock, co-founder and CEO of TaskUs the world's leading outsourcing provider for digital customer experiences. Bryce discusses some of the core values at TaskUs and how to build company culture in a global business. Stay tuned for more from Bryce Maddock of TaskUs. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Mission Daily. I'm Chad Grills and I'm joined today by Bryce Maddock. Bryce, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Chad. Awesome to talk with you. And where are you calling in from today? I am sitting in our WeWork office in Austin, Texas. Very cool. And you said you moved out there recently to Austin? Yeah, about two and a half years ago, um, we had actually uh, had our headquarters. We still have our headquarters in Santa Monica, California. We were opening up our first contact center operations in the U.S. Chose San Antonio for for the first uh, contact center site. And so I really wanted to be as close to the operation as I could be to kind of help shape the culture and, and make sure that I, I had kind of a finger on the pulse of what was going on there. But uh, my uh, girlfriend could only be convinced to move as close as Austin, which is it's an amazing city to live in. And we're only about an hour, 20 minutes from, from our sites in uh, San Antonio. So we now got three offices in San Antonio and I, I was down there yesterday, I get down there a bunch. Very cool. 
And when you mention culture building, this is something I want to get into later because your cultural values that you list on your website for Task Us, they're, uh, they're pretty ambitious to say the least. A lot of people have cultural values. They might talk about them in passing. Uh, but what I noticed with your team's cultural values, they're all applicable, basically. You could apply them or attempt to learn them or practice them uh, each day, which I think is really cool. So we'll get into that a little bit later. But um, yeah, just, yeah, I mean, one thing I think is really interesting, we, we, we Jasper, who's my co-founder of Taskus, we, we started the business when we were 22 and we knew very little about, I mean, really anything, but much less how to kind of build a, a business and a culture. And we had a executive coach early on who taught us about how to build core values. And he said that, you know, every core value of your company has to pass two tests. One is, would you say no to an opportunity to make money from a customer if that customer wanted you to violate the core value? And the second wow. is, would you confront and fire a colleague if that colleague consistently violated the core value? And so I, it's, a, I mean, it's a kind of a brutal test, but we've applied it to everything that we thought might be a core value. And we, we ended up with the, with the eight that are on the website now. That's a really, really cool test. A uh, fun way to think about, yeah, how to construct that company culture. So company culture is important, especially in the early days, but it's also important for a company like Task Us, which I think now has around 15,000 people. Yep, that's right. Yeah, we, we just crossed 15,000 employees at the end of last year. It's, it's, it's a challenge to, to, to scale, right? I mean, I think that when you're, when you're a startup and we were for many years, just sort of a group of people sitting around in a single room, it's easier to know kind of where everybody stands and to create a culture where everybody has an you know, uh, equal seat at the table and, and a voice. And as, as you grow and you go into different cities and different countries, scaling that culture can be a really big challenge. It definitely sounds like it. So if you could, can you take us back to 2008 when you and Jasper and you know maybe you're talking about this idea with friends and family, what was the genesis of the idea for Task Us and uh, what led you to it? Yeah, so um, Jasper and I, uh, again, best friends from high school. We had done some you know, small businesses in both high school and college, and we both thought we wanted to be entrepreneurs. I was in New York, and he was in LA. I'd gone back to, to school in New York, and he stayed, he stayed on the West Coast for college. And I went to work for an investment bank for about a year and a half after, after school. And uh, I can remember I was home over Christmas, and I was pretty miserable in my job. And Jasper said to me that he wanted to go down to Argentina and open a frozen yogurt shop. He had studied abroad in Argentina. He thought that frozen yogurt was exactly what the country needed. And that was a, a strong enough reason for me to quit my investment banking job and try to learn Spanish and move down to Argentina for about a month in what was a, a very quickly failed frozen yogurt venture. Um, <laughs> at the end of that process, I end up back living with my parents in Los Angeles and, and Jasper's in the same spot. And uh, it, it was pretty humbling because it was like, wow, we thought we were going to be living in Buenos Aires and living this great life. And, you know, here we are back living with our parents after I had had a, a year and a half really where I was kind of supporting myself. But I, I had this idea, which came from being an investment banker. When I was doing that, that job, there was uh, quite a bit of work that was simple and re repetitive. And, and I used to say to my other kind of co-investment banking analysts that I could easily outsource the work that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And so Taskus was like our attempt to do that. We wanted to build a 
virtual assistant network where busy professionals could send the task in and then we would use some some pretty rudimentary skills-based routing to assign that task to someone in our in our network of, of assistants to essentially do and uh, we tried to basically say look any any virtual work will do Put, putting together a presentation reviewing contracts doing taxes i mean there was some pretty sophisticated stuff that we we offered to take on but uh pulling it off in reality was a real challenge because we, I mean, we were trying to kind of be all things to all people. It took us, to, I don't know, 18 months maybe to figure out that that model was not going to work. We ended up with not very many customers, and the ones that we did have were, were pretty frustrated and disappointed with the results that we produced. And we, we had opened actually a small office in a town in the Philippines, about an hour south of Manila. Um, and we had five people working for us full time there really to kind of help us centralize our operations and, and control some of the quality of the work that we were doing for people. And so that was, you know, one asset that we had as we realized that that was, that the business model was no longer going to work. And the other thing that we had was a network, right? We had thought of ourselves as a startup. And so we had a lot of friends who were building startup companies themselves. Some of those friends, fortunately, were a lot more successful than we were, and they were growing teams of people you know, customer service, back office operations, doing things like content moderation for social networks. And there's a whole bunch of, of, of work that was going into building these businesses. But the teams that were doing those jobs were being hired in the most expensive places in the world, you know, downtown New York or Market Street in San Francisco. And so we pretty quickly put two and two together and realized that, you know, our team of people in the Philippines could do a lot of the work that, that uh, our friend startups needed. And you know, we pivoted to offering outsourcing services for rapidly scaling startups. And that's really when the business took off. Very cool. So take me back to your job with investment banking. So this is something that is, uh, it's around, it's uh, sold and marketed pretty heavily to people who attend elite universities. So what's, what's your view on it? When did you first discover investment banking and what was that experience like for you? And what do you think you learned from it? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was on-campus recruiting. I, I mean, I, I realized that I was going to graduate and not have anything to do. Um, I had missed a lot of the on-campus recruiting window just because, I mean, I, w- I didn't go to the business school. I was, I was studying international politics and sort of not conscious of it. And kind of towards the end of the on-campus recruiting window, I realized, man, I got to get in there and, and, and do some interviews and um, and, and see if I can, you know, find a reason to stay in New York. And I interviewed with a couple of consulting firms and a couple of investment banks. It really was kind of like whoever was showing up on campus. And uh, there was one very small investment bank in New York that offered me actually an internship, didn't even offer me a full-time job. And I said, well, that's my, my chance that I'm going to take it. And at first I was really excited because I thought, you know, I was going to be, you know, a high-flying Wall Street success story. And it was really humbling. I mean, I, I at first kind of put my head down and worked hard, but uh, I quickly realized that I actually, I think the, the moment at which I realized it was not going to be for me was I did this exercise where I looked at everyone who worked in the, in the company I was working for and, you know, the associates that were one step above me or the vice presidents or the, or I guess directors and vice presidents and managing directors. And I asked myself like, you know, do I want the associate's job? And I said, not really. You know, do I want sure. the, the principal's job? Not really. Do I want the VP's job? No, not really. And it wasn't until I got to, to the CEO who was also a co-founder of the firm that I was like, you know, that job I think I'd be interested in. But, you know, the, 
the thought of sitting around for the next 35 years, hoping that eventually I'd make it there just was daunting enough, I guess, to inspire me to go off and try to start something on my own kind of short so, the process. So you jumped into entrepreneurship and, you know, the first, I guess, was it the first real venture? Would you say that was the frozen yogurt venture? Mm. Yeah, so we, I mean, we, 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 that was a very, we were smart there in that we failed very quickly. I wrote a business plan for the business. Um, Jasper had a bunch of connections down in Argentina and we went down and within 30 days, we realized that it was not going to work. Of course, that, you know, I'd already quit my job, so it was too late to, to get my job back, but we failed very quickly there and then, and then got into testing. When you did fail quickly with the frozen yogurt venture and when you were, you know, working with Jasper on that, what did you learn about each other? And was there a moment where you realized, okay, if I can go through this and fail with my co-founder, you know, I can definitely go through it and succeed. Did that bring you two closer together or what, what happened there? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that we did before we started any business ventures together was we went and we traveled. And this was not to Argentina. It was actually right after we had graduated from high school. We had $3,000 each and we went and backpacked across Europe for six weeks. And we stayed in hostels and it was just an amazing experience. And it really, that, that kind of brought us a lot closer together. We had been very good friends in high school, but we sort of became best friends on that, on that trip. And I think because of that, when we, when we went through this experience in Argentina, like I don't look back on that experience today and say like, wow, that was really miserable. In fact, it was a lot of fun. And it, you know, I'm sure that there were points at which I was really stressed out and thought, man, holy cow, I lost, left my job in New York and now I'm going to have to go back and move in with my parents. But something sure. about being with your best friend in a foreign country uh, made it all seem kind of like an adventure. And that, you know, that has actually helped us a lot, I think, in the last 10 years of building this company, because there were you know, countless times when we have been in really challenging situations, very stressful situations. And the fact that we can kind of fall back on that bond and a history of really, you know, just enjoying one another's company makes a big difference. It definitely sounds like it. So shared history, I think, is something that gets underestimated by a lot of founders, a lot of investors. When you have a close bond with your co-founder, I think it allows you to do way more than you could if you had you know, only known each other for a couple of years or had met at a local meetup or something like that. How important do you think is shared history and how would you recommend for people that don't really have a shared history yet with someone, how would they go about finding a relationship like that? I think the one you know, flip side is that I've, I've heard so many horror stories of close friends, best friends, whose relationships have been torn apart by failed business ventures or, or sometimes actually torn apart by successful business ventures. Sure. Um, and you know, Jasper and I have had our fair share of challenges because we are both hyper-competitive and while we love each other's company, we, we also, you know, both want to be in the spotlight. And when you're co-founders and there's sort of two people who are in the business, that can be a really big challenge. So I say all that to say that whether you've known the person all your life or you've met them in the last month, I actually think the, the one thing that makes or breaks a partnership is communication and, and the ability you know, both to be incredibly vulnerable and, and say how you're feeling and to listen, truly listen to what the other person is saying. So like I think about my relationship with Jasper and the number of times I've had to say things to him about how I'm feeling 
that I am so just so embarrassed by, right? Because we all kind of think like, I mean, I mean, maybe not everybody, but I think most of us aspire to be egoless and and you know, I don't need the credit for that, but to be like, oh man, you know, you going and speaking at that event makes me feel insecure. It's a it's a crazy thing to say. I think a lot of people let sure, that sure. kind of they bottle it up and they'll they'll it will come out in a passive aggressive manner and so like the, the, i completely agree completely agree yeah, there yeah the, the ability to like hear one another on that is, is really really important and I, and I mean i i give jasper a huge amount of credit he's modeled that behavior for me since the beginning of the partnership and really being able to get vulnerable and say how he's feeling and also you know listen intently to how i'm feeling i think that that's if i was to credit our, our partnership success with it with anything it would be that so I think communication is definitely key to accomplishing anything great and collaborating with anyone. It's still, though, one of the most difficult things to do. And in a world of texting and remote work, I think it becomes in some ways even more difficult for everyone that's listening out there that's thinking, I know I could accomplish so much more. I know I could be so much more if I was able to communicate better. Are there any strategies or practices that you've employed you know, you alluded to an executive coach earlier. Was that something that helped you with communication or was it a couple of books that you've read? What were the game changers for you? Yeah. So executive coaching has been instrumental, not only in my communication with Jasper, which it has been, but also in, in our executive team's communication. So, you know, we've got an incredible executive coach, a guy, a guy named Mark Moses, who runs a, a group of executive coaches at a thing called CEO Coaching International. So we've worked with Mark for like the last five years. And, you know, Mark, Mark is amazing at just sort of cutting to the heart of the issue. And there have been times when he's taken Jasper and I through this issue clearing exercise where, I mean, you get super vulnerable, say what's on your mind and, and really, like I said, have to listen to the other person. And I'd say at times that has saved our partnership. And similarly, he's able to act as a mediator amongst our executive team. So he, he, he sort of listens to what everyone is, is feeling and, and thinking and is able to, to kind of, I guess, help grease the wheels on, on that mm-hmm. communication. Another thing, you know, is obviously executive coaching can be re- incredibly, incredibly expensive. And, and uh, I mean, it's not, it was not something in the first five years of business that we could have afforded. But uh, another thing that was super helpful for us was the book Crucial Conversations, um, okay. which kind of has a, an amazing framework for, for how to have these types of conversations. And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, we work in a company that's completely distributed, right? We've got 15,000 employees across four different countries. And in the early days, it was really challenging because we, we could very infrequently afford to travel to the Philippines. But the, the importance of face-to-face communication just cannot be overstated. You really, I mean, you know, in, in this day and age, it, everybody seems to default to, to text messages or emails, and those are so easily misinterpreted. A, a phone conversation is always preferable, particularly if you have to deliver uh, or receive bad news. A video call is, is, is probably slightly better than that. But I mean, doing something face-to-face whenever possible is just critical. And I mean, I can't tell you for us the sort of intimacy that we're able to build amongst our team by going out and doing, doing lots of, uh, of events. So next week, we've got a celebratory event where we're sending you know, 120 of our, of our uh, senior leadership team to New Zealand. It's incredibly expensive to do that. I mean, really, mm-hmm. really expensive. 
and you know, in, in June, we'll do something similar where we, where we send a similar number of people to Denver, Colorado and get everybody together face to face. Again, it's a, it's a huge investment, but it's totally worth it because the passive aggressiveness and resentment that can build up if you're just communicating with people virtually gets washed away. And we found that, you know, doing ideally would be quarterly, but in, in, again, so from a budgetary perspective, probably every six months is enough to kind of just clean the relationship up and, and have a release. And you, you, frankly, like you don't even have to talk about the issues. You can just go and have a beer with somebody or do an activity and like get to know someone on a more human level. And I just think that's a lot easier to do when you're, when you're face to face. Completely agree. So what was an early uh, story or example where you discovered the power of investing in your team and investing in people? Because as a business owner, for any CEO or co-founding team that survives, that has a thriving business, there's going to be a certain amount of paranoia that they ca- have carried with them along the way. How do you push past that and get to a mindset of abundance to where you know you see the value in investing in people? As a CEO, how do you become more comfortable with uh, investing in people when you know you need to obviously make sure that the finances are good first and foremost? How do you balance that? And was there one example where you discovered the magic of investing in people? Yeah, I mean, in the early days, we had no money. I mean, Jasper and I started this business for twenty thousand dollars. And uh, I mean, my, my parents' house was our first office. We really tried to, I mean, I mean, we stretched every cent, like our initial computer monitors we got off Craigslist for free. I mean, I can tell you so many stories about sort of like the scrappy, scrappy early days. And that, that mentality, I think, is really important because particularly if you have no money, right? I mean, it's different, I guess, if you've raised the seed round or if you've raised a, a Series A you're in a different position at that point. But for us, we, we didn't have the luxury. And if we spent money in that way, we would have quickly run out of it. And so my mentality has always been hyper micro as a result of that. And to this day, probably the criticism that I get the most from, from my team is that I'm a micromanager and that I get too involved in the details and that I need to sort of empower them to, to run the business more and more. But I can remember the, the first time that we built an office from scratch in the Philippines. I, I was I was involved and I was very adamant about controlling the costs of that build. Um, and at the time I was hiring a, uh, a new country leader for, for the region, a great guy who has gone on to, to now run our global operations. And you know, he, he had come to me and explained this theory that if we spent not a, not a ton more, 10 to 15% more, on our capex that we could create an office space that would look and feel much like our silicon valley clients offices these would be Mm -hmm. offices that would be inspiring to come into and and really exciting for for our workforce to work in and you know i understand probably most people on this uh, who are listening have never been to a, a philippine contact center but i can assure you that most of them are not particularly inspiring places to work and so, you know, he, he was able to convince me to, to take this leap of faith. He was you know, kind of early in his tenure. And I said, well, I'm going to back him. Let's go ahead and let's, let's invest. And we, uh, we built a really cool office. And it was totally different than anything in the industry. And the buzz that got out and our ability to just organically recruit people to come and work purely because the office was so cool was... I mean, I think it was worth it almost you know, instantaneously in terms of the, the ROI. 
But then for us, because we've got you know, a lot of customers who will come and visit and, and want to look at the operations, the sort of added benefit of having customers come and visit, task us, and a couple of our competitors whose offices are a little bit more drab, more traditional contact centers, we started to win business just because our offices were core. Um, and sure. so, you know, it's a perfect example where I think shifting from that, that, that mindset of scarcity and frankly survival to one of abundance can, uh, you know, if done at the right time and the right place can totally, can totally transform the business. Definitely good for us. So Bryce, one of the things I think is most interesting too about your business is the way you've, I don't want to be presumptuous here, but basically taken on investment. So to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, you've raised three investment rounds. So uh, it looks like one equity, one debt, and then another equity round. And what I think is interesting is in a day and age where many people have party rounds, where they'll have you know 20 different investors invest in a single round, uh, you have one investor and one partner in each of those rounds. How did you go about thinking about that? Was investment something you knew was something you were going to do at a certain point? Was it something you always knew you were going to do? How have you gone about thinking about that? Yeah. So in the beginning of the business, we didn't really, we didn't really think the business was uh, investment worthy. We had talked to a few angel investors and when we explained what it was, they were basically like, oh, so it's a, it's a services company. And no one really wanted to invest in a services company, which was, which was fine. I mean, we were lucky, I think, in many ways in that we bootstrapped it for the first seven years. And so in 2015, we, we had a, a, a customer that was growing exponentially and we were going to need to build a bunch of new office space for them. And so we sort of based a choice. And, you know, by this point, the business was, was relatively successful you know, Jasper and I were able to pay ourselves a salary and, and we're making, you know, actually a really good living by that point. But we were fearful that if we were going to go and spend, you know, multiple millions of dollars on these offices and use debt to do it, that we could lose the entire business if, if things went upside down. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there was a fund called Navigarn Partners out of the Philippines. They were run by a great guy named Javi Infante that, that had sort of one of the early uh, pioneers of outsourcing in the Philippines. He really understood our business and uh, it was just a natural fit. And so Javi was an incredible investor. The entire team at Navigar were, were great investors. They put in $15 million of, of, of equity and did very well for themselves on, on that investment. The debt round was just to give us access to some extra liquidity in case we needed it. And at that point, we didn't re- re- know sort of how much cash we were going to need to continue to scale. And so that was fairly simple. But this year, we, we sort of got to a position where we were going to take another sort of order of magnitude uh, growth. So the business, when Navigar invested in the company, had done $15 million in annual sales. In 2018, we did $254 million in annual sales. So there was massive growth uh, in the business. And we, we're looking forward to growing this thing globally and eventually taking it public. And so we decided to go out and raise a larger round of funding, both to get Navigar a, a great return on their investment and to give us an institutional backer who could really help us grow globally and eventually take the company public. And so we chose Blackstone simply because they're the best in this space. They've got a track record of, of building really category defining businesses in business services and tech enabled services. And the team of folks that we're working with out of their Mumbai office in India are just incredibly passionate and, uh, and really understood what we're doing. 
And so we raised a $250 million round from them in October and it's off to the races. So, you know, each one of those rounds has been a defining step for the business. And when we were doing them, certainly capital was, was sort of the main impetus, but I mean, we were very focused on like, who is the person that we're going to work with day to day who will be able to call if we've got a problem. And I think that's the reason why we focused on having only a single investor. I mean, nothing wrong with having a huge group of, of, of investors, but sure. I've always found that focusing on one relationship and going very deep has been more successful than focusing on lots of relationships that maybe are a little bit more surface level. Very cool. And one of the things I noticed you know, during our call and in, in that answer right there is uh, strategy. Like you're a, a very strategic thinker. Have you always been that way? And how would you go about recommending? Is there like a recommended reading list or how do you think about strategy and how do you improve your strategic thinking as a CEO? Yeah. I mean, again, we've got a strategic uh, planning process that we run every quarter that uh, our, our executive coach, Mark Moses, has, has sort of helped us to craft. I believe that the most important thing you can do in strategy is decide what you're not going to do. And that doesn't mean like, you know, uh, low priority items, just cross them off the list. It means high priority items, deciding that's not the absolute highest priority item. And so the Mm -hmm. discipline of saying like, you know, there probably are seven or eight things that we'd like to accomplish this year. What are the four or five that we're going to just decide we're not going to do so that we can absolutely maniacally focus on the top three? And that, that framework of thinking has been really, really helpful for us. So like a, a good example recently for us has been, we're trying to get this business into more countries, right? So that we can provide a global platform to deliver services for our, our customers from all around the globe. And uh, there's lots of opportunity for us to get into Europe, lots of demand from our customers for European language services. And at the start of this year, we had to say, you know what, 2019 is not going to be the year that we go into Europe. We're going to focus on opening in India this year and we'll open in Europe in 2020. And I mean, that is such a tough decision, particularly when you've got salespeople who've got deals lined up, commissions attached to those deals, customers who are are counting on you to open in that geography to then Mm -hmm. say, we're not going to do that is a really big challenge. But ultimately, I think that's what makes or breaks a business is its ability to, to say no to one thing so that it can do something else really, really well. Wise words. So as you're considering a lot of these decisions, these are pretty high stakes decisions. Are there any daily habits or practices you're engaging in that uh, help you make better decisions? So I see you're into marathons. You've run, I think, two marathons and 10 half marathons. How do you view habits and health? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the most important balance in my life is the, the balance between the intensity, the mental intensity, I would say, of business and the physical intensity of, of for me, it's an in, in, uh, endurance uh, sport. So I do running and I do triathlons and, you know, going out for a, you know, a long bike ride or a really intense run is the way that I, I balance, balance my life. And so every day starts with a workout and it's, it's not something that I ever compromise on. I'll be unfortunately sometimes late to meetings or um, have to skip things, but I have to get get my workout in every single day. I mean, I also do other things like meditation and you know uh, uh, gratitude journal, but those those are not as as orthodox of practices. I don't do that every single day, so I will do that when I can. But the 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 physical exercise has been kind of the the, the single threaded of an outlet for me every single day. So it's different for every single person, but having something that you just don't compromise on 
every day, whether that's maybe it's time with family or friends, you know, talking to a particular individual, maybe, maybe it is meditation or prayer for some people. Uh, for me, it's physical exercise. So at the end of every interview, as we're wrapping things up, we like to do a lightning round. And uh, one of the things I wanted to incorporate was the uh, cultural values of Task Us in that round. Uh, so let's let's run through them quickly. And if there's any quick story or thought that comes to mind with each one, or maybe why you picked it, feel free to throw it in. So I'll uh, lead off here with the first one, which is inspire others by believing in yourself. Yeah. So that's uh, Jasper came up with that one. And uh, the, the idea is that the, the, the best way to be inspirational is not to talk, it's to walk, set an example for people uh, through daily actions. So the next one is my favorite definition of technology, which is do more with less. <laughs> um, so this is a ripoff directly of Tony Shea from uh, Delivering Happiness and, and his whole Zappos story. And we loved it just because, I mean, in the early days, we had almost no resources. And so it was just sort of sheer spirit and determination that, that got us through. Next one is always strive for excellence. Yeah, we, we think that you know perfection and excellence is not a destination, it's a process. So you can never quite get there. And the, the discipline is the daily practice of attempting to get a little bit closer uh, to that state. All right, and the next one is something I'm struggling with, always working on, exercise emotional intelligence. Yeah, so that came from our experience with communication. And, uh, and some, some bad hires who were really struggled to, um, I guess, be self-conscious of, in the way in which they were communicating with, with people. And so we decided that people who were not emotionally intelligent and effective communicators were not folks that we wanted to work with. So we added that one to our core values. Very cool. And the next one, I heard this a lot uh, in my time in the military and on deployments, and it's so true. Teamwork makes the dream work. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so our entire business is, is based around the team structure. It's it's uh, typically somewhere between uh, 12 teammates to one team lead or, or 15 teammates to one team lead, somewhere in that range. And we we believe that, you know, you rise or fall based on the strength of, of the weakest member of your team. Um, and so our expectation is that everybody uh, work together to bring that that member up and as a result succeed uh, as a unit. And, and so that that is, I mean, it's proven time and time again from our frontline teams up to our executive team that it's critical that everybody succeed for us to all succeed. Next one is continuous self-improvement. We wanted to be more than just a professional focused organization. We want folks who are, are interested in whether it's, you know, for me doing marathons and Ironman competitions or for somebody else who could be, you know, going to cooking school, what, whatever that is, we want people to be multidimensional and to constantly work on, on improving whatever their passion is outside the workplace. All right. And the next one is work hard, but have fun. Yeah, it's similar, right? So beyond, beyond your passions outside the workplace, are you someone who, you know, again, this is called sometimes the canoe test or the airplane test or airport test. Are you someone that, you know, you'd want to be stuck with in an airport or stuck within a canoe? Do you not take yourself super seriously? And can you, can you have a good time? Cool. And the final one, uh, which I love is be ridiculous. Yeah. So our tagline for the longest time was ridiculously good outsourcing, which uh, was our takeoff from, from Derek Zoolander's ridiculously good looking. <laughs> um, and so we, a few years later came up with this concept of, of be ridiculous, which to us meant first of it means, you know, we want people who think differently and are not afraid to throw out uh, an idea. And also, you know, 
so it's a sort of like having people who are kind of brave innovators, but again, goes to the heart of also working with people who don't take themselves so seriously. Love it. And Bryce, what's the best book you've read over the last year? Um, Why We Sleep. It's a great book. It's a really, awesome. as, for, as someone, as someone who, uh, who doesn't sleep enough, it was very impactful. I, I'm sleeping much more as a result of it. And then the other book, actually, I just want to mention one more just because I'm, I'm so passionate sure. about this other, yeah, other go book, for it. which is called Endurance. And it's, it's about uh, Henry Shackleton's voyage to the Antarctic and what I, I believe is probably the single greatest tale of human survival in recorded history. And in dark times, I go back to that book over and over and over again. And Shackleton probably had the best job listing of uh, anyone I've ever seen. Uh, so if you haven't seen that, be sure to check it out. Is there any time this maybe last year that you've changed your opinion or your thought process on an important subject? Could be personal, it could be professional. Uh, what have you changed your mind about in the last year and why? Yeah, yeah. I think um, one of the things th that I've been working on a lot has been how much I'm doing. So, you know, the attitude last year as we were raising the Blackstone round was one of sort of like, just get as many things into the day as possible. And um, <laughs> I, uh, I was running ragged from one meeting to the next, unprepared for, for a lot of the meetings that I was showing up to. And so the thing that I guess I've modified my thought process on in the book, Why We Sleep actually helped me, me do this a lot, is that I, I need to do less and what I do, I, I need to do more effectively. And, and again, I think that's, it's not like unique wisdom. I don't think it's a surprise for many, for anyone to sort of hear that being said, but I think in, ingraining that into, into your daily life, particularly when we're all in jobs that are so hard charging and, and, and around people that are, you know, seemingly superhuman and doing more and more and more to, to take a step back and say, you know what, I'm actually going to do less. I'm going to try to do it more effectively is, has been a, a challenge for me, but one that I'm still working on. And Bryce, with that, if you could leave everyone that's listening with one final thought or one final piece of encouragement, what would you say to everyone? Be ridiculous. <laughs> I love it. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.